encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1 through chapter 39, verse 8. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 760, 760. 760. We are, after this Sunday, we're taking a pause in the book of Isaiah, and we are uh, going to spend... Uh, the two Sundays following uh, in part of Matthew, as well as Christmas Eve in part of Matthew, and we'll get back into Isaiah uh, sometime in January. We're still not nailed down on that yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, this will we'll end at the end of chapter 39 today, and it provides a natural break-off point for us to pause and then re-enter in chapter 40. Would you pray with me as we prepare to enter into God's Word today and ask His hand, His mercy, His grace, His kindness to minister to us by His Word. Let's pray. God, as we open Your Word, we pray You would open our hearts. As we examine Your Word, as we hear from Your Word, we pray You would cause us to hear from You. May Your Word have power. May Your Word reveal Your importance the relevance of Christ to us and to our lives. For He is worthy of the affections of our hearts, and He alone provides clarity and direction, bedrock, foundational meaning, purpose, understanding of who we are, why we are here, and, and what we are here for and what you would have for us, and how we know you. This is all found in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I, some of you know that I am, I am not a runner. I uh, don't understand runners. I think it's weird. I, uh, I won't say anything more because I'm sure some of you are runners. Uh, I understand the health aspects of it, so I get that, as, I get that why some of you that do it run. But I'm more of a swimmer, a cycler, that kind of thing, if, or, or just playing sports, that kind of thing. But just getting out and running is very odd to me. But if you got to know me very well, you'd say, okay, Stephen, there's a lot of stuff that's very odd about you uh, to us. Many of you probably already know that. Um, so anyway, I, I, I enjoy competition, though. I enjoy watching running but I don't enjoy running. So when the Olympics are on, yeah, I like watching track and field. I think I would enjoy more like the 100-yard dash or 100-meter dash or 200-meter dash. Like, okay, something I run and I'm done with in 10, 11 seconds, 20, 22 seconds, like that kind of thing. All right, yeah, like, like, like yeah, that, that's good. But I'm talking about like miles and miles and miles and marathons and all of those things, not my cup of tea but I do enjoy the competitive aspect of it. I enjoy watching the Boston Marathon every year. Um, in fact, one of my favorite aspects of the marathon is probably a part of it that I might be the only one in the room that this is my favorite part of it. And it's the very beginning. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And here's why. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the marathon before, I've noticed this, but every year there's, uh, you know, it goes off, it starts off in waves, so there's like the, uh, uh, I, I don't remember the exact order, but, but 
Uh, there's the, the men's wheelchair division, women's wheelchair division, and then I can't remember if the men's elite division goes, for, uh, goes next or the women's elite division goes, I don't know. But anyway, when, in the men's elite, I don't see it in the women's elite division because women are smarter than men, but I see it in the men's elite division every year because you know how like uh, uh, in a marathon there will be the cameramen on, on like the back of motorcycles riding along and so they're, watch, they're, they're filming and, and back of trucks and they're filming all that. Sometimes there's guys that are running the marathon who they will start out and they will just start sprinting. And the reason they do so is because, well, in one sense, they're idiots. Um, but in another sense, they have like family and loved ones and friends who are back home in Wisconsin or Iowa or Oregon or whatever, and they're watching. And this is their chance for their friends, their loved ones, their children to see them running the race and to even be able to say, for a moment, I led the Boston Marathon. But you all know how crazy it would be to be running a race that's 26.2 miles long and start out in a dead sprint for the first quarter mile, for the first half mile, for the first mile to give it a whole lot of what you've got. And then you're just dragging for the last 25.2 miles. I love that. Maybe because I like seeing other people uh, make fools of themselves or be gluttonous punishment, or just to know I'm not doing it. That's a good illustration how not to go about the Christian life. It's easy to start strong. It's a lot more difficult to finish well. And sadly today, we see an example of this in Isaiah 38 and 39 with a figure that we've been watching throughout this last few chapters of Isaiah, and that's a guy named Hezekiah. What we're going to see in Hezekiah today, and I want to argue this for you, I want to make this case for you from Isaiah 38 and 39, is that God's answering of our prayers, we must be on guard so that the answering, His answering of our prayers today doesn't help to derail our faith tomorrow. Let me say this again. We must be on guard. We must be careful that God's answering of our prayers today does not derail our faith tomorrow. We're going to see Hezekiah, in a sense, start well, but finish poorly. You remember last week, if you were with us, you remember Hezekiah gave us this great model of a bold, passionate prayer before God on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people of Judah as they faced great danger. Well, now the, the Isaiah, now the, the author of this story, gives us another account of Hezekiah that ought to humble all of us, yes, lest we think we're running the race really strongly and we have nothing to be concerned about in regards to our own self and the pride of our hearts. Look at this in Isaiah 38. We're going to see Hezekiah face a great personal dilemma. We're going to see God deliver him. But then we're going to see destruction that can come from that. So dilemma, deliverance, destruction. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Let's pause here. If any of us were in Hezekiah's shoes, we would probably be praying something pretty similar. Or maybe different words, but with a similar heart. God, I'm not ready for it to be over. This is terrible news. This is the dilemma that Hezekiah faces. So he takes this prayer before God. And now listen to how God responds. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. And this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial ten steps by which it had declined. So pause. You see what God's doing here. He's telling Hezekiah in response to this prayer of Hezekiah, he's saying to him, Hezekiah, I've heard your prayer. I'm going to give you 15 more years and I'm going to work a miracle. I'm actually going to cause the sun and shadows to do something different in the sky that you have not seen before to show you that I am here with you and to show you that I'm going to meet your need. That sounds pretty good. That sounds quite appealing. Hezekiah's dilemma, the problem, the cry, the concern of his heart has been met. It'd be interesting to ask all of us here, maybe write down on the mental notebook in your mind, what is, what, is, what is a prayer I would take before God? Or what is a prayer that God has given, that, that God has, that, I, that I've, I've, a need that I've taken before God over the last week, over the last few months, over the last few years, that, that I have found that he has filed away however you would want, that I have found that he has either answered and he has, he has shown himself good and faithful and kind and gracious, or file away in another direction and say, what's a prayer of your mind that you have laid out before God and that you have said to him, God, I really need you to do this, and here's why. Here's the great need I'm facing. And it has seemingly been silence from him or rejection from him. I want us to start thinking through these kinds of things and start filing this away as we start to make our way through the rest of this passage. Because we're going to start to unlock the mystery of how God works and answers our prayers and what God is up to and what we can learn and how we respond to these. You know, one thing that's interesting about Isaiah 36, chapter 36 through chapter 39 is that it is as if, so, so the rest of the book is written in prophetic form, not pathetic, prophetic form prophecy, prophetic form. It is as if God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah. It's not as if. It is, in fact, true. God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah to his people that they may hear him. And then we get this brief interlude, this brief intermission in 36 through 39, where it's largely focused on Hezekiah. And so one thing I think that we're subtly seeing throughout this is we're subtly seeing the, the voice and the authority and the reign of God over his people. 
And now we see the voice of Hezekiah, and we see in some ways how we might be tempted to respond to God or what our hearts might be saying or thinking in regards to God's work in our world, in our lives. So we're going to hang on to this a little and see how we can relate to Hezekiah. Now see how Hezekiah responds after this great news that he will not be cut down by this illness, this disease that has come upon him. In verse 9 and following, we have a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. I want you to hear the, the, the realness, the authenticity of Hezekiah's heart, his understanding of himself and his life and the world. He said, I am in the middle of my days. That word middle could be translated almost to quiet, distant, near to death. I'm in the middle of my days. I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol. That, that's this place of, of death, of destruction. For the rest of my years, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Let's pause there. These are words of a man that is dying. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you, maybe you are dying right now. Maybe some illness plagues you. Some serious disease has reared its ugly head. Or maybe you feel as if you are dying, drowning in some circumstance, some conundrum, some hardship. And you can relate to Hezekiah. You say, I feel like I am walking down the, 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 the sidewalk. I mean, in fact, it's not even a sidewalk I'm walking down. I'm going down the moving walkway at the airport that I'm on and I can't get off. And it is taking me straight to the gates of Sheol, to the gates of death. Or you feel as if your life is one where it is like, a, verse 12, it's like a tent. That's, that the, the tent is pitched for a season. It's a dwelling there, and then it's picked up, moved on, there to stand no more. Like a weaver, Hezekiah, think of a, think of a big tapestry with big illustrations and, and images and all of these things telling the story of Hezekiah's life. And he's like, I've had this unfolding tapestry of my life, and now, Lord, you are cutting off the loom. You are cutting off the end of it. The story is now coming to a conclusion. You know, that's one thing that our unanswered prayers, or that's one thing that the curveballs that life throws at us is that they tell us life is over. Or life as we know it is fundamentally altered in a way in which I don't know what I'm going to do with this new understanding or this new perspective of what I have now for life. I always envisioned or pictured life being going in this direction, but now this curveball has come my way and now it's altered my perception. Now I'm having to face this direction and all I ever knew of life was facing this direction. I don't know what the future holds. And that can be daunting in of itself. 
One thing for all of us to consider, you might be in perfectly fine spiritual health or physical health. You may, some of us, you might be, have some disease and you might be wasting away. Or some of us, you might be in perfectly fine spiritual or physical health. Excuse me, I keep saying spiritual. You might be in perfectly fine physical, physical health, but spiritually you are in a place of great uncertainty and tumult. And you feel like in verse 13, God is a lion who breaks all of my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end. There's another example of the Bible just being honest about the cries of Hezekiah's heart towards his God. God, what are you doing? Why are you bringing this upon me? Verse 14 even, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. He's saying basically there, you know, how often you, you hear the birds chirp. But you don't make anything of it. You just hear it. It's just noise, right? Any of you hear birds chirping this week and try to stop and hear and listen to them and say, okay, what are you saying, little bird? Can you explain a little further? I didn't get the first word. We're in that stage right now with Nick as a three-year-old where it's like he can talk just enough that he is trying to communicate to us, but we have to ask him, can you repeat that? Can you say that again? And he's making up words for things that we don't understand. And so communication can be a challenge. Maybe you feel like you're this bird chirping to God, trying to cry out, and he just does not hear you. Or maybe even more strange, he doesn't understand you. You ever felt that you carry burdens that only you can understand and know? As if you're in this silent prison this invisible prison of your own heart and no one else understands or knows and can make sense of them? This is the boat Hezekiah was in. But then listen to him in verse 15. He says, What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live and in all these is the life of my spirit. Spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my, my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of the, our lives at the house of the Lord. Hezekiah recounts the faithfulness of God's answered prayer to him and says, this will not stop in the praise to your name, O God. I had a buddy of mine in college who his dad was diagnosed with a potentially terminal form of cancer. His dad did the thing that probably many of us have done, perhaps some of us in this many people have done, perhaps some of us in this room have done before, where you get that really, really bad news, and you pray and say, okay, God, if you bring me out of this, I'm, I'm yours. The rest of my life, whatever, it, it's yours, take it. Any of you ever made promises like that to God before? God, get me out of this bind. I don't care how you do it. I don't care what you do. Just get me out of it, and, and I'm, I'm, you can take control. In one sense, that's what Hezekiah is doing there. God has delivered him, and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm it. My life is not my own. It belongs to you. 
You know, there's a few lessons for us here before we move on and see some big, heavy lessons. We're going to see heavy lessons for our soul in chapter 39 as we turn the page to that in a moment, but let's get lessons for our own minds. You know, one thing that we don't do well as a people, as a society, as a culture, we've done a lot of it over the last couple of years, but in general, we don't think, we don't consider, we don't ponder our mortality very well. Death is a taboo topic, subject. When I was greeting people coming in the doors today, how would you have responded if I said, oh, hey, it's good to see you. Have you thought about death this week? <laughs> we don't think of that. Something that we want to push away something we want to push out of sight, out of mind. All of us would be wise to consider and to think upon the finite nature, the the, the, the mortal nature of our lives. Not in a sense, so so we think if if we do this, we're going to have to walk around with long faces and and, and, and start wearing black all the time and, and just think that like life is woe and life is terrible and life is horrible. Not in a sense like that but in a sense where we have a real and correct understanding of both ourselves and our world and our God to the point where we start to understand that the work and the purpose and the nature of who God is for us is one where He is directly and intimately concerned with where we are and who we are and and what is going on in our lives right here, but one where we understand this eternal purpose that He has for us And this one where we understand that he is committed to us, even to the point that it stretches beyond the grave. As Christians, I think we are most faithful in this life when we are most aware of the life to come. In one sense, the whole of the Christian life is one of preparing for eternity. We are going to see Jesus. We are going to be in his presence. We are going to delight in his face as he will wipe away the tears from our eyes as he as as sorrow and and sadness will be no more as sin and suffering will be but a distant memory and even as the struggles and the pains and the trials of our hearts the hardships that we carry in this day will be long gone in that day And so that if I know if I'm going to be in the presence of Christ one day, where every single need that I am aware of and need that that I have that I am even not aware of will be met, that is going to help me to trust him in the midst of today when I carry needs that I don't understand what he's doing. When I know that every conflict, every hardship, every relational fracture that I deal with in this day, insensitivity, inappropriateness, Lack of care, lack of, lack of love, lack of generosity, lack of humility, all of the things that we walk through in our own hearts or that we bear the brunt of from those around us, when I know that those things will be washed away in the sweeping flood of Christ's redeeming grace that we will drink of and drink of and drink of throughout eternity in his perfect presence, that helps me to better prepare for that day. You want to be a more faithful more gracious, 
more hopeful Christian? Consider where your faith, your hope, and the grace of God is grounded in. As Christians, we are served well in considering the fact that we are but from dust, and to dust we will once go. Young people like myself, I consider myself still young. Some of you don't. When young people hang out in this church, I never get invited. And I know that for a fact. You guys can't hide it. But I still consider myself young. We would all be wise to consider our mortality. It's even uncomfortable, awkward for Stephen to say, right? Like, I wish he'd change the subject right now. But we would be wise to consider it that we might praise him all the more in the life that we have. The model that Hezekiah gives to us is praise of God in his own heart, in his own good health, in his own healing in verse 15. Praise of God in his home in verse 19. Praise of God amongst the people of God in verse 20. May God give us minds that are anchored, that are geared towards eternity. God shows us that when we think about our own mortality and our own eternity, and we hope in Him in that, that is a ballast to our souls in hoping in Him in whatever we may face today. I want to conclude the end of chapter 38 with something that might be just easy to read over and hard to digest, or hard to understand or see the significance of it at first reading. Verse 21, now Isaiah had said, let him take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? That's such an innocuous statement. What's the sign? God, will you give me a sign that you're going to do this? God had already actually given him this sign of the sun and the shadow and all of that. Now Hezekiah wants one more. And what this actually reveals to us, verse 22, we're going to see it in chapter 39, is the, 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 the faltering foundations of Hezekiah's trusting God. We're going to see the, 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 the beautiful picture of this bold, rugged faith in God kind of start to unravel in chapter 39. And, and, and verse 22 is kind of the first sign of it. But before we get there, let's pause and ask ourselves, what are our expectations for God? There have been times where I have wanted God to give me a sign. Hey, I haven't even, I don't think I've been too demanding. I don't need him to like write things in the clouds. I don't need him to like, I don't know, me hear his voice in an audible fashion. Somebody show up and knock on my door and say, I have a message from God for you. I just want something that will calm my heart. What do you wish 
We came, but we, we, we started today asking in one sense, what's a question that you have for your prayers? What do you wish? What kind of sign do you wish God would maybe answer those prayers with? Or what kind of sign do you wish God would give you to show you that He is there and that He cares? If I'm going to be honest, and we're going to walk through this wisely and honestly, this is the point in the sermon where I have to confess some things to you. I have to confess that there have been numerous times in my life, even times even now in my life, where I have prayed things, I have desired things, I have yearned for ways for God to provide some kind of healing, some kind of answer, some kind of mercy in the midst of a situation I was walking through, maybe a relational conflict or uh, maybe watching somebody suffer from some kind of physical illness or uh, uh, just, just wanting or seeing a need for, for, for some kind of provision or some kind of answer to a prayer of a need that myself or that somebody else would have. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and God did not answer that prayer. And it did not make sense to me, and it still, here, here's what I want to confess to you. It still doesn't. If you were to inject me with truth serum right now and you said, Stephen, give us three, four, five, ten, fifteen prayers that you or loved ones or whomever people around you have prayed, ways in which you have asked God to work. And he has not worked how you wanted to, and you don't understand why. I carry those into this room, just as you do. So what Hezekiah forces us to do, what Isaiah forces us to do as we start to walk through this, is to start to grapple with something about the providence of God, the, the, the hand of God at work in this world and in us, His people, in our lives, in a manner by which we are going to start to have prayers that we want to be answered in certain ways. We're going to start to have desires for our life and direction that we want to go. Answered or moved or worked about in, in, a, in a way that I would like to see it happen. And it doesn't happen. And then the whole test of whether or not we believe and trust in this God is one where we are willing to say, okay, God, I leave it in your hands. It's where Hezekiah stumbles. But he stumbles in a way that you and I would not expect. Because his prayer just got answered. Hezekiah is not sitting here saying, God, where are you? What are you doing in this world? Hezekiah is sitting here saying, God gave me a new lease on life. And so maybe in God giving Hezekiah a new lease on life, you and I sitting here with our unanswered prayers or our prayers that we feel that we still want to see him move in a certain way, we'll start to understand some of what he's doing. Follow along as I read chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Can we pause here? I, I, 
Any of you remember the show on MTV Cribs? Hezekiah is on Cribs right now. If you're not familiar with that show, if you're a little too young or a little too old, um, Cribs was where like celebrities, musicians, uh, famous athletes would, would invite in this camera crew from MTV to come in and they'd show them their, their 17 uh, bedroom house with 15 bathrooms, 24,000 square feet, full movie theater, bowling alley, uh, three holes of a golf course, uh, uh, I already said bowling alley, 19 car garage, all of these things. And they'd show them around all of their treasures. This guy is on cribs right now. The Babylonians are there. Showing them the silver, the gold, the spices, precious oil, the whole armory. Literally, it says all that was in his storehouses. And then at the end of verse 2, there was nothing in his house or all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. I want to pause. I want to ask you something. If you've seen Cribs, does an episode ever end where you say to yourself, wow, that musician, that athlete, that actor, he's really humble. No. You leave it saying, wow, I'd like a house a fourth that size. I don't need all the cars in his 26-car garage. I'll just take six. He can have the other 20. Hezekiah has allowed the gifts and the grace of God to go to his head. There's something strange that we should understand, this reference to Babylon. Eventually, the Babylonians would capture the people of Judah, Hezekiah's very own people, generations after him, and they'd lead them into exile, into captivity. But throughout the Bible, Babylon is this reference for this outside people, this people outside the people of God who always sought the destruction of God's people. And even in the book of Revelation, at the end of your Bibles, you see that the people of God are attacked in two ways. Through persecution, violence, anger, lashing out of the world against the church, blaming them for their problems and enslaving them and uh, throwing them in jail, killing them, all of these things. That is one way that the enemy seeks to silence the people of God. But you know the other way? that the people of God are led away from their God in Revelation through seduction and flattery, through gentleness and promises of celebration. And oh, look how great you are. Look at all that you have done. Look at all that you have. Wow, Hezekiah, such great wealth. Your storehouses are really impressive. Wow, that's a lot of silver and gold. The funny thing is here that many of us may not initially realize is that the Babylonians were this, this superpower of themselves, and Judah was this really small nation. So this is kind of similar to like if, if envoys from the United States went to, um, uh, 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 I don't know, like, like Kazakhstan and said, huh, 
the Kazakhs really have it going on here. They've got a lot of national wealth. They're flattering them. Hezekiah doesn't see it. He's being flattered to the point that they're basically doing recon to see all that he has because they're all going to come and they're going to take it. And in taking that, the greatest thing that they're going to take is they're not going to take his silver and his gold. They're going to lay hold of a heart that has departed from God. That's what idolatry does in our hearts. It tells us that I need this thing more than I need my God. And so the danger that we see with Hezekiah as Isaiah questions him in the midst of this Look at verse 5 and following. The danger we see is that Hezekiah's body has been healed, but his heart and his trust in God has been hurt. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Do you see the absurdity of that statement by Hezekiah? Hezekiah, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, they're going to be exiled to Babylon. They're going to be enslaved by them. And Hezekiah says, fine by me. I'm an older man. I'm going to die before it comes on me. We see a man who chapters just before boldly laid out prayers to God on behalf of his people. who now has no care for them. His heart has been flattered, and he's been given 15 years before the Babylonians come and take them. Parents, grandparents, older members of our church body, We all have a responsibility to see that the faith that we profess, the faith that we hold dear, is not just a faith that helps us to make sense of our life, but is a faith that we pass down to those who come after us. May we resolve to finish the race set before us well. May we understand the treacherous charm of peace and security. May we welcome affliction if affliction is the prayer by which our souls are spared from separation from God. So this forces us to ask the question, is it possible that things that God has left unanswered in our lives to this point have been left unanswered not because he is a mean or spiteful God who doesn't understand our circumstances but because he is a gracious God who does not want to lead us away from him.
the hope that we have as followers of Christ is that as we read of how Hezekiah's unfaithfulness would sadly lead to the exile of generations after him, our hope is tied to a king whose faithfulness led to not his peace and security, but his pain and suffering at the cross. And the suffering of Christ on the cross did not lead to generations being scattered, but led to the return of scattered spiritual exiles who would compose the generations after Christ. And the church gathered here today is a testimony to the gathering grace of Jesus Christ, those who would come after him. Christ is the greater king who puts the needs of his own people above his own. And it did not lead to his avoidance of death, but it led to him facing death head on. Christ is the greater king who the Babylonians came and enjoyed and flattered his heart. But Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the earth if only he would bow and worship him. But Christ withstood these offers and these flattery because he knew the direction for which he was going. What Hezekiah forces us to do is Hezekiah forces us to take a serious examination of where our faith lies. And what I'm about to say, it might sound confusing, so listen carefully. Our faith will not survive if it is in, if your faith is in your faith. We all can experience a little success, a little goodwill, a little good fortune in life, and find that we don't have need as we thought we did. Sometimes that absence of need drives us away from our God. May we resolve, as followers of Christ, to recognize that we follow a crucified king. We follow a savior who was crucified and killed. Not a, save, not a king who pled for relief from his pain and then to assuage the selfishness of his heart let those who would come after him go. But he was killed that those who come after him might live. May we resolve to not let the answered prayers of God today lead to our spiritual destruction tomorrow.
Perhaps the greatest way that we can do that is being reminded that our ultimate tomorrow is one where we will be in the presence of King Jesus for all of eternity. Therefore, any earthly success that we enjoy today, may we see it for what it is, give thanks to God, and praise Him for the success of Christ, proving victorious over death, and knowing that we will be with Him for eternity. Where the gifts that we enjoy today will be no more, but the giver of those gifts will be the great gift that we will enjoy forever. Let's pray. God, you are the great gift and joy and the delight of our souls and our hearts. And we give to you all praise. We pray you would help us to walk through life with appropriate, proper perspective. That doesn't, get, that doesn't drown ourselves in the false joys of peace and security. But lives by the living water of Jesus Christ. The ark through whom we escape the judgment that our sin deserves. Lord, let us learn from Hezekiah that our faith cannot rest in ourself and in any kind of faith we can muster. But it must rest in King Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.